everybody's doing well. I'm going on vacation in the morning, so this is, you guys are my first act of vacation. So. <laughs> um, I'm going to Asheville uh, with my parents and my sister Emily. And so yeah, I'm super excited. Like we're there till Monday, so I'm gonna go see the Biltmore, we're gonna eat lots of food. Super excited. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let me pray for us before we get started. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this evening and our time together, Lord. I am just so grateful and thankful for this uh, study. It's been such a blessing in my life to be able to just spend time really digging into all of this and truly uh, figuring out like what I believe with all of these topics, Lord. And I just am grateful for the clarity and the wisdom that you provide to us to be able to understand your word and to read it and just... Um, the clarity that you give us, Lord. I pray that you will use this um, information in all of our lives. I pray this is not just an effort of knowledge, but it is something that will um, change our hearts, change how we read scripture, change our relationship with you, and just um, advance us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so what I did here on this first page is, I was like, I want to give you guys just a summary of all of it. So this is super simplistic <laughs> there's as you know there like last week there was like six pages of notes and it's and the week before that there was like four so it's all been condensed down to like one-liners but this is how my brain works of like i need to see it and it helps me like uh, kind of process through seeing it in such simple terms so hopefully this is helpful so um and our, our diagram up here again so we start with the covenant of redemption, the one that is between the Trinity, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's before time or outside of time. Uh, it's kind of the foundation of everything. Um, and it was it's the one where it's kind of where they're setting the parameters for everything else. Then you have the covenant of works. That is the one between God and Adam, who is the federal head, a.k.a. he's the representative for all of humanity. God tells them to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. These are the promises and the blessings that he's going to give them. Even though they're commands, they're also blessings. Um, and the conditions that they were told was they were not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And ultimately what that is, is that is they needed to follow God's word, right? The word he gave them was this one commandment, but they were told they cannot rebel against him, basically. You have to follow my word. And as we're going to see, that's basically the condition. That's all the rest of these. Like that is the condition that is set forth. You have to follow God and you can't rebel against him. The penalty is death. As soon as they fell, sin entered the world. They didn't die immediately, but they did die eventually, right? And so from that point on, death is now in the world. Um, and then we have the, the tree of life is the sign there. So then kind of immediately after the fall, God graciously establishes this covenant of grace, right? And we see the covenant of grace um, kind of being played out in all of these sub-covenants that are with all of these uh, people throughout history, right? So we have, the first one is Adam, where he's given the very initial um, gospel presentation in uh, Genesis 3.15, where he is promised that a Messiah will come to crush the enemy of, of God's people. Um, and God sacrifices animals for the first time to provide them a covering for their sin and their clothing. Um, then we move on to Noah, which was the flood and uh, where God kind of wipes out all of humanity because man had just become so sinful. And God promises all humanity that, and all are not humanity, all living creatures, because he's talking to the animals and everything, to the whole earth, that he's going to preserve creation the way that it is until the final judgment. And if you remember the reason he was doing this, because, you know, so he's providing common grace, but the special grace he's providing is that he, that is allowing the through line of um, Christ to be able to come through. So it's saying, I will preserve creation so that redemptive history can happen, right? Because if he just wipes everybody out, well, then we can't have a Messiah because there's nobody to have the Messiah. 
Um, and then, you know, there's no requirement here. It is common grace. Everyone receives it, every living thing. And the sign that was given was the rainbow. Uh, then we move on to the Abrahamic covenant with uh, between God and Abram. And if you remember, uh, there were numerous promises given, but it came down to the three, land, seed, blessing, right? He's promised land, that his people will have a land. He has promised a nation, which is made up of people, which requires the seed, and blessing. God has promised to bless his people, bless Abram's family and all his descendants. Um, yeah, so just to bless them and they'll be his people. Um, the condition was that Abram just had to leave his country, his family, and kind of go to where God was showing him. But the penalty, if you remember, God took on both sides of both parties of the covenant. Um, this is where the animals were split in two, laid out. Abram was put to sleep and God walked through um, as I think it's like a torch and a pot or something. I don't remember. <laughs> walks through as two things representing that he is taking both sides of it. So he's saying, regard, you know, like if this will happen, right? He is banking on his character that this is going to happen. And the signs that are set up are um, that he shows Abram the stars and the sand and says, like, your descendants will number the stars. And then later on, uh, that you'll have as many as the grains of sand. Um, and then circumcision is given as the sign. So all the male descendants of or in Abram's family are to be circumcised. Uh, and, this, and it is a sign that they are part of the covenant family. It's not salvation, but they are part of that family to designate them and set them apart as a people for God. All right. Uh, next, we have the Mosaic Covenant. And this is really the one we're going to be focusing on this week, mostly, because as we get to the New Covenant, this is the Old Covenant. Um, so this is the Mosaic Covenant, a.k.a. the Old Covenant, um, is between God and Israel the mediator of this covenant is Moses. He's the one kind of going back and forth. Um, and they are promised, God promises them that they will be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And if you remember, they, God is saying, you are already blessed. You are my people. To remain in this special relationship with me, the requirement given, the condition, is that you obey my law. So he, he gives them the blessing first, and then he says, here's how you maintain this, right? But if you remember, we also talked about that from the get-go, God puts into the language of the law provision for atonement and provision for sacrifices and priests and all these things. So he knew that they would never be able to live up to it. They knew He knew they couldn't be perfect and keep his law. So he provided them a way that is going to point to what we're talking about tonight. Um, and then there's lots of lots of penalties in this. I just put the references there. There's too many to list. Like basically, if they break the covenant, they will be just lots of bad things will happen to them. And eventually we see, because they definitely break their covenant, uh, they are put into exile. God sends them um, out of the land and they are taken captive and taken away from the land. Um, and the sign given there is the Sabbath. And then the last one we have in, of the Old Testament covenants is uh, the Davidic. And basically, it's between God and David. And God promises to David that his throne will be eternal. It will be established. And there will be someone from his um, descendants that is forever on the throne. And so, you know, as you look at our thing here, as we're getting closer and closer this way, we're going through time. It's becoming more and more clear what the plan is, how it is happening. You know, you get, you know, the Adam, all we have is that like initial promise. And then, you know, a little more clarity at Noah, a little more with Abram. Moses, we get the full law, the what the requirement really is. And David, it really is now pointing to like, it's going to be a king. It's going to be a person who is coming to save you. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is what we've covered up till now. <laughs> So now we're going to jump into the new covenant. Um, 
So we're going to start in the Old Testament. And we're going to kind of work our way from uh, the Old Covenant to, or the, yeah, Old to the New. So if we everybody turn to Jeremiah 31. So last week we did look at um, a passage in Amos. There are lots of different passages in the Old Testament that talk about and prophesy about um, the coming Messiah, the kind of new covenant, the promises that have been made. But I would say this, Jeremiah 31 is, at least from what I have read, is kind of the, the primary one that people point to because it's very explicit of talking about this new covenant. So um, in chapter 31, so Jeremiah overall, if you're unfamiliar with the book, is about uh, the nation of Israel breaking their covenant, and it, this is the book where they are taken into captivity, where they are sent into exile. So it is all about um, Jeremiah trying to prophesy to them and get them to repent and turn, and they just are not doing it, basically. And so eventually they are taken into captivity. They are taken from the land. But you get to chapter 31, and so read, you read this with the thought that these people are in exile. They are not in their land. There is not a Davidic king on the throne. Like, none of the promises that we just talked about are happening at the moment. But uh, we're just going to read a little bit of this first part. At that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So you can imagine, like, if you are a believing person and you are in exile and you're hearing this, because it would have felt like God had abandoned you, you know. But he's telling them, like, I haven't left you. You broke my as a people, you broke my covenant, and so I'm punishing you, but I am loving you, and I am continued my faithfulness to you. So this would be super encouraging. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourselves with tambourines, and shall go forth in the de- dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria, kind of promising they're going to come back to their land. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit, for there shall be a day when watchmen will call on the hill country of Ephraim, arise and let us go up to Zion for the Lord our God. So he is, and it continues on like that through verse 30 of, he's just promising this restoration of Israel while they're in exile. Like he's saying, it's coming. Like I'm going to restore you. So then let's jump down to verse 31 in that same chapter where he kind of, he just is, the entire time is just talking about the promises, all of this. When we get to 31, we now have the means by which he's going to bring this restoration. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So the covenant that he made when he brought him out of Egypt is the Mosaic covenant, okay? So he's saying it's going to be a different kind of covenant. It's different, but it's um, it's like, the or yeah, it's going to be different from the one that he made. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive them their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So so he's kind of there in a nutshell giving us what this new covenant is going to be. So he is saying... Um, it is not going to be this, you know, because you think about the the old covenant. It was these laws that were given to them, kind of written on stone. And he's saying, this one is going to be different. It's going to be written on your hearts. I'm going to put it inside of you. It's going to be for all people. Like he's kind of laying out like the parameters here of what he is 
gonna do, okay? Uh, they still would not have fully known, like, you know, of exactly what it's gonna look like, but he's giving them details of what this new covenant is gonna look like. Um, one thing to note here is when we talk about new covenant, um, the, the way that this phrase is uh, translated, I guess, the way is think of it in terms of like a new addition or a renewal. It's not like a brand new thing. It's, it's a, there's a different word for that. So this is more along the lines of, uh, it's not like they're, he's completely demolishing it and starting from scratch, building over kind of new. It's a, he's renewing it, making a new version of what was there before. If that makes sense. Um, so kind of moving on to the new covenant, um, basically the new covenant is Christ full stop. Like it is, he is every part of it. He is, uh, I do have later on where we kind of go through like the parties and the, all the things, basically every answer of what is the new covenant is Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Jesus is the new covenant. And he um, is not just the answer of the new covenant, or the new covenant is the answer to all of it, okay? The, you know, completion of all of these is Christ, right? When you talk about the covenant of redemption, Christ is the fulfillment. Covenant of grace, Christ is the fulfillment. Covenant of works, Christ is the fulfillment. So it is, uh, and I have some of them listed here, like in... Well, obviously, this one's the most obvious. Christ is the Messiah who was promised to Adam. Uh, Noah, God promises to preserve creation until, you know, redemption. Well, Christ is the one who provides the redemption, and Christ is the one who, you know, preserves creation as well. Uh, Abram promised a nation. Well, God, or Christ, uh, is the one who enables all people to come to, to God. So it, it, when you talk about it's not just Israel anymore, we're going to you know, outnumber the stars, it's because all of us get to be included because of Christ. It's no longer just this one people group. Um, the Moses, Mosaic Covenant, um, where no man could perfectly uphold the law, Christ did. He came in and he held, like, perfectly upheld the law and provided atonement for everyone in that. Um, and then the Davidic, he is the king the, from the Davidic line sitting on the throne forever. He is that king. So, in all ways, all aspects, Christ is the fulfillment of all the covenants. So one thing that I think is interesting, I have a little paragraph there on there. To us, so the covenant of grace to us is a gracious thing, right? We are receiving atonement, righteousness that we did not earn. But for Christ, the, his dying on the cross is not the covenant of grace like it is a works-based thing for him so we are saved by works it's just not our works right when you look at and so that's where when people you'll hear sometimes like the covenant of works like went away it's like no it didn't it was there god's requirement was the same it just was fulfilled in a different person than us it was fulfilled through the mediator so um the works and the grace all are fulfilled at the same time through Christ's works. And we are graciously given his righteousness. So, does that make sense? Okay, because <laughs> that's important. Because it's not as though God just decided all of a sudden that we're gonna, you know what, it's fine. I'm just gonna forgive him. I'm gonna forget about it. No, his requirement through the entire process stayed exactly the same perfect righteousness and it was only until Christ came and fulfilled it that it was then completed um, 
And then, uh, so in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, we're not going to turn there right now, but, you know, it's the verse of just where it is counted to us as righteousness. Like where you, you know, um, at, when you are born, you are given, because we failed this through Adam, you start in this, like, deficit, right? You start where you... It's not that you are just like not worthy of God. You are like in the negative. <laughs> if, you're, if you're an accountant, like you have a negative balance. And so when Christ came and fulfilled that, this is why it was important for him to live a perfect life, right? Because he didn't just pay, like if he just came, dropped down at 33 and like died that day on the cross, he would have paid for our sins. But it was the fact that he lived a perfect life. He kept the law perfectly that we are able to not only just be like level set with our, our punishment has been paid for, we are also given the life that he lived on top of that. So does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it, you need both, you know, cause Christ, God didn't just demand that the sin be paid for, he does require that from all humans right like they will if it's not paid for by christ it will be paid for for eternity in hell so you either can choose one or the other and it's that we get our punishment paid for and we also get his righteous life that he earned we get a little weird about the word earned but christ did earn it (laughs) like he he lived on the earth and earned his perfect life that we get all right um so then, kind of as we move on, there are some similarities and some differences between the two. They're very, there's, I would, personally, I think they're way more similar than they are uh, different, but uh, there are some differences. This is more of a sticking point for other people, I would say. I don't know that I, you know, whatever. But, um, and the, the words you will hear used when other people talk about this, if you ever read about it, is continuity and discontinuity. Um, so some of the things, and this, and by the way, all of these notes, all of these things, there are entire books written on all of this. (laughs) Like there's, there's so much more. I'm like trying to simplify and condense. So like you can go like there are entire books on the similarities and just, you know, differences between the covenants. But these are just some of the ones that I felt were important to me at least. So, uh, the similarities, Number one, they're both instituted by the same God. Old covenant, new covenant, all covenants, same God. And one of the things we know about God is that he doesn't change. He's unchangeable. So if he can't change and he's the basis of all of these covenants, then the covenants are pretty much going to be the same. They might look different. They have different um, avenues and, you know, nuances, but it's all basically the same thing. Um, It does... Uh, have the same moral law. We're not going to get into the uses of the law and all of this, but the there are parts of the law that when Christ came and that kind of went away because it's no longer needed, like all the rituals and ceremonial law. But the moral law is the same. You can see if there's a pass. You know, there's lots of passages, but this passage in Romans it talks about like there are laws given that are still in place, still in effect now. So it's like, you know, you think of like the Ten Commandments. If you go back to the one before, God hasn't changed. So if he didn't want you to commit adultery before, he still doesn't want you to commit adultery. Like it's not like, oh, just because we have a new covenant, the moral law has changed. The law is the same. Um, The requirement is still the same. Perfect obedience is still the requirement in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, We are granted grace in that it's not, we are not held to the requirement, but it's still the same requirement. Someone has to have perfect obedience. Um, And then the last one here, all believers in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are saved through faith in the covenant promise and justified through the covenant maker. So regardless of if you lived in the time of Moses, or if you live now, you are saved by believing in the promises God has given and the fact that the Messiah was coming and would fulfill those promises. So it is all, it's always been faith, even if you were under the Mosaic law, um, no one was 
there was no real provision in it to say like, if you do these things, then you can't be saved. It was always by faith um, through Christ. Um, so then moving on to the differences, um, the law, I think I mentioned this before, the law at the, in the Mosaic law was written on stone, right? Like it is in, you know, they could see it, it was there. We in Jeremiah 31 are promised is written on our hearts. You know, we have the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We, you know, have been redeemed. That doesn't mean that I won't still sin, but I, it's in me. Like it indwells me constantly. I don't have to go check the stones <laughs> to see like, you know, what uh, the law was. Um, the ongoing provisions for sin are no longer needed, right? I don't have to go every year and sacrifice a lamb because Christ has dealt with it once and for all, right? So it's done away with all of that part of the law. And um, it's available to all people. You know, none of us in this room, I don't think any of us are Jewish uh, by uh, ethnic ethnicity. Uh, none of us would have been eligible under the Mosaic law. So the new covenant opens it up to all people groups. It's no longer tied to a single ethnic group. Um, any questions on any of those? All right. So we're going to turn now to Hebrews. And if you have never studied Hebrews, I would highly recommend it. It's a great book. Um, and we're just going to kind of walk through a few chapters here that kind of deal specifically with um, the covenant and kind of comparing the old and the new covenant. So we're starting in Hebrews 7. So um, it starts, Hebrews 7 is um, about Melchizedek. And he was a priest who was um, the priest who took the tithe from Abraham. And uh, some of the things about Melchizedek, you know, we're not going to read the first part here, but it does kind of go through the story of Melchizedek. There's not much known about him. He just kind of pops up, and he is just called uh, a priest of the most, or the God Most High, you know, so he's not really given much detail about. But let's turn to verse 22. Um, well, actually, yeah, okay, so 22, 25. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So uh, the part we didn't read up above is it's kind of talking about the high priests back in the Old Testament where they were all from the line of uh, Aaron and they were made priests because they were born into that line. So you could, so technically it says in there, Jesus could not have been a priest in Old Testament because he came from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Aaron. And so when it is saying Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, it is saying he was made a priest, not because he had to be, because he was born into a certain thing. He was made a priest by God. God uh, declared him a, a priest. And so um, the priest before, they had this like legal requirement they had to meet, um, and God didn't have that. You know, God or Christ didn't have that because he was just, he is just a priest. And, it, you know, it goes on to talk about how he, the other priests, they died, right? Like you could have been the best priest ever and you're still going to die. You're still going to, like, there's just, you're human, right? And so it is saying that Christ is the better priest, right? Christ is better than all the Old Testament priests that were there and he gets to hold this priesthood permanently because he continues forever right he will be once he was made a priest he will forever be a priest because he is forever 
right? So then uh, let's move over to chapter eight. So we're gonna, so if he's the better priest, he also is the better priest or the high priest of a better covenant, right? So it's not only is he an eternal high priest, but he's also enacting a better covenant because the, uh, I think it, hold on. So now the point in which we are saying this, we have such a high priest, talking about Christ, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Right, so it's working through that. It's, so we have a high priest, Christ, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So he, so, so think back to like what the high priest did. They went in and they were able to go into like the Holy of Holies and do all of this. Our priest, he doesn't get to just walk into the room like one time a year to do this. And there's a possibility he might die because if he's taking like sin and like, you know, whatever, he might die. Our priest is literally sitting at the right hand of the throne, a minister in the holy place. He's not in just the room that's been designated. He is in the actual holy place with the Lord in the true tent that wasn't built by man, but was built by God. So he is in the actual heavenly tabernacle with God in the actual holy place. Um, yeah. So he is, this kind of continues on that he is just better. He is better. Like <laughs> everything about it is just better. And uh, so everything that has come before all the other priests, all the other sacrifices, everything were just a shadow pointing to this better, better, everything. Um, so then I think it's down in verse, like 13. All right. Um, so then, well, before we get to that, it then goes on to quote Jeremiah 31, 34, through whatever, what we read earlier, where it is saying, here's what the new covenant is going to be. So it's saying, he is a better priest who is doing a better covenant, which remember Jeremiah told us it was going to be a better covenant, and he's reaffirming it's a better covenant. And we look in verse 13 and speaking of a new covenant, it makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it is saying all of that, that you were under the law that you were under, he is making obsolete, not in the fact that it's like dismissing it or going away. It's fulfilling it. Right. It's not saying, Oh, he's just going to demolish all that and start over fresh. He is completing it by making it uh, and making it obsolete in that way. Um, and then if we jump down to chapter nine, verse 11. We, we see it's now talking about Christ as the better sacrifice. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So now it's, it's kind of building on it. Like, okay, so he is the better priest who is entering the better temple, who is entering the, with, you know, the better sacrifice as well. And the reason it's a better sacrifice is because it's him, right? He is, the, he's the high priest, he's the sacrifice, he's all of it, right? And so, um, for if by the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of def defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So he's saying, if you know you guys had you had your faith in these ordinances and sacrifices that God had put in place, 
and you were putting your faith in those, now you get to put your faith in the perfect sacrifice of Christ, right? So it is kind of bringing it full circle of where it's just talking about how Christ is better, all the better things. You know, he's the better priest. He is, it's a better covenant. It's a better sacrifice. And we get to be part of that, right? We get to, um, yeah, we get to be a part of that. <laughs> I think it's a good way to say it, of like that you, in the, co- in the new covenant, we get to experience all of the better, basically. Um, so there's so much more in Hebrews. Like, I really would encourage you to read, if you haven't in a long time, read Hebrews with this better understanding of the covenant because I promise you it makes so much more sense of like, and you see in there where it's just how it all just connects together and um, it just makes it so much more of a beautiful picture. You know, and I think too, even having the, when you're thinking about it, and this goes not just for Hebrews, but all scripture, when you are thinking about kind of the whole timeline and you're thinking about um, how it is building on it and it's one big story and, you know, thinking about even in just, even just the atonement, okay? Like we take Christ's death. When you, like it, it's amazing, it's an amazing right like no one is questioning that but when you start to understand all the things in history that are leading up to that moment and that it's fulfilling more than just pain for our sins like it is fulfilling this huge big thing it makes it even deeper and richer and more um amazing you know and so i think having this the covenant theology perspective just really does help you when you're reading scripture when you're studying to be able to see it from just a much higher view and a much more granular view like it gives you both of like where i can dive in and like see okay when it's talking about and you'll and i promise you now that you have heard all of this you're gonna see covenant language everywhere in scripture because you you read it and you're like my gosh, I never realized that they're talking about the, they're talking about the Mosaic Covenant there. Like you just, you, you pick up on it so much because it's all throughout scripture, um, covenant language. Um, any questions on any of that? On the... I have a question about yep. the Mosaic Covenant. Is mm-hmm. there a reason why it's classified under the greater umbrella of the covenant of grace rather than the covenant of works? Um, so there are people who would say it is not part of the covenant of grace. They would say it is a republication of the covenant of works. I just, I, it's very much a split camp kind of thing. I don't think, I don't agree with that in the sense that because God puts the language into it that provides grace to people, like it's never at any point God saying, here's how you become saved. Because a lot of the people who think it's a republication of the covenant of works are saying like this, that God's providing that way of salvation. And I would say, and I um, have talked with Ryan about this because I was like trying to figure it out. It's, you know, we are saying that you are all, all, even those people were saved through faith, saved through grace. And so it's part of that. It is, Yes, it does have the conditions and it has the law part of it, but it is um, still part of the covenant of grace because this was there, the requirement here was established in great detail here. So it's not that like it was established here and then he did something and it was like not connected. It's all connected in one thing. So the requirement even in grace, is the same. Because I think if you make it the covenant of works, then you're saying, well, then Christ is fulfilling a different covenant. Like, he's fulfilling all of them. Um, So if he's fulfilling it inside the covenant of grace, then he would also be doing the mosaic. Does that make sense? So, um, and I think on last week's, I had, 
I don't know if you looked at the notes on that one. Um, I had a lot of references and stuff on all of that. So, was the grace part the establishment of the priestly duties and the priestly line? Is that where yeah. the grace comes in? The yeah. Law. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, like the ceremonial law, where he, God provided uh, ways for them to atone for their sins, that were pointing to this like future. Messiah that is coming that would fulfill it permanently. It's very clear that he's pointing and saying, like, you know, he's setting up from the get go that they can never uphold it. And so he's immediately establishing these gracious um, acts of like sacrifice and things where they can find um, temporary kind of atonement waiting for the future. Uh, Messiah that's going to come. All right, so um, I, this last page, I just was trying to kind of consolidate um, some of the things into our the other headings we've had the whole time. So the parties, this, so this just, no, I'm super, I am not clear here on exactly what I believe. So that's why I have a lot of little hash marks here because it and there's not super clarity even just between theologians of like is because like I said at the beginning all of it is Christ but like from like every aspect is of Christ but there you know it's like is the co the new covenant technically between God and Christ or is it between God and the elect is it between God and the church which the elect and the church are the same thing but it's like and then Christ is the mediator of it or like I'm still trying to work through that. So just, you know, if you have thoughts, I'd love to hear them. If you want to do some research too, like, because it's, it's, and it's one of those, like, I don't know that it's like super, it's not critical to know, like the, the covenant is still there. It's in Christ. There's no um, question on if Christ is the mediator. Scripture is very clear that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. I did not list the scripture here, but, I can do it once I, before I post this online, um, of where it's like very clearly says Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. <laughs> so he clearly is a mediator, but the parties, it's like, it's a little, cause in my brain, I'm kind of like, it's between, I can see the evidence that it's the covenant is between Christ or I mean God and the elect and Christ is the mediator because as I put there, like, Christ is able to be the perfect mediator because he can fully represent God and man because he can be both God and man and he is both. So, so I don't know. That's I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> um, of the promises and the blessings, they're listed uh, very clearly in Jeremiah 31 and then relisted in Hebrews 8. And I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Um, so yeah, it's pretty clear like what all he is promising us. Um, the condition is perfect obedience, right? And we are uh, fortunate to have a mediator who fully and eternally fulfills this, not us, right? The requirement is perfect obedience and God is accepting Christ's uh, payment for us. So the signs of this, um, we have two. Let's turn to Romans 6. So the first one is baptism. Um, And so, okay, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to read the rest of that. Um, so 
baptism, and there's lots of other verses you could read, has been, it's kind of replaced circumcision with this is the new covenant sign. So that is why we get baptized, is to say and to identify ourselves with this covenant community. We're not really going to get into infant baptism, but that this is where that comes from. I would say the majority, the large majority of Reformed communities do infant baptism because they argue that um, just as circumcision was done to a baby to signify that they are in the covenant community, baptism is, can also or should be done on a baby to signify that they are in the covenant community. Just like circumcision, baptism is not a means of salvation. Just because you are baptized does not save you. It's just to say and to show that you are part of this community. There's there's lots you could talk about here. Of there's people. I mean, there are people that do believe that being baptized as a baby like does save you. That clearly is not what Scripture teaches. I I think. Um, just so you know, personally, I kind of fall. I don't have an issue with infant baptism because I do think it is set up in scripture as a sign of the covenant family. I also don't have a problem if as an adult you get saved and you want to get baptized and you've already been baptized as a baby. I don't have an issue with that. <laughs> like I think I I don't see anywhere in scripture that would like prohibit that. That like if you want to reclaim your, you know, being saved as an adult, I don't think that's an issue. So, so I don't know. There's there's a lot that you could probably say here, but you know, our church clearly doesn't do infant baptism. But you know, yeah. <laughs> if you have questions on that, you can go talk to Ryan. <laughs> um, and then the second is uh, communion. Uh, so let's turn to Luke twenty two. Um, so this is kind of the um, the sign and the meal that we is established kind of with the new covenant. So obviously this is taking place right before Christ dies. Um, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So it's you know interesting even just reading this, like when I read things like the Passover, like I immediately go back to, you know, I'm thinking about when God brought them out of Egypt and it's like you immediately go into this covenantal language of like what the Passover represented. And because soon after that, the Mosaic covenant is given. And so he's, even he is kind of tying it back to this Moses um, connection for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup... Uh, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So Christ is here when they're taking the cup, just saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so he is saying, like what I'm about to do, this sacrifice I'm about to have is the establishment of this new covenant. So when we take communion every week here, like you are, yes, you are, you know, thinking of Christ and his sacrifice, but you are remembering the new covenant that has been established to save you, right? Because that's what he's asking us to remember here, this new covenant that has been put in place. So, um, so yeah, I think that's all I got, guys. <laughs> I uh, I hope that this has been helpful to you guys. Um, like I said, it's been it's been really great for me. I've learned more than I ever thought I would about the covenants, but 
So I hope that it um, has made sense and it's clear and that um, it just starts you on a path of um, seeing the covenants everywhere. Does anybody have any questions, anything they want to talk about? We do have a little time. This may sound ridiculous. But when you when you say old covenant, mm-hmm. are you referring to everything that came before the new covenant? Not really. When it really is mostly referring to just the Mosaic covenant, because it is referring to just the law that's been given. So I mean, you can. It does include all the rest of it, but that is where the, the most of the specifics were given. You know, there's just not enough really information given because like you look at the Abrahamic covenant and it's like, I mean, yes, there are lots of promises made and it is important and all like those promises do carry on through the rest of it, but there's not really any conditions that were given. Like Abram was promised all of this stuff kind of unconditionally. And so it's not until the... It's not that people didn't know that they were sinful and that they were not being punished for or like being held accountable for their sin. But until that requirement is given, they don't really know the depth of what they're trying to live up to. Does that make sense? So like when it referring to the old versus the new, and when we say like the burden of the law, we are referring to the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law that was given to them because it is this its entire purpose and point is to make you realize understand how sinful you are and how much of a deficit you have to the righteousness of christ or god does that make sense okay anything else why do you think it took so many years (laughs) (laughs) through this process like do you guys ever think about that? I, of just redemptive history? Yeah, yeah, the entire yeah. process. Of, well, it yeah. ultimately brings him glory. Yeah, I was going to say. Right. I mean, ultimately, but, it's like he could have done anything. Right, right. It's like, but he, this was, yeah, yeah. This was yeah. his yeah. plan to yeah, bring him. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. It's like time. It does <laughs> seem. The longer you wait for something, the better it is. Right. Kind of get it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I have thought before of like just that like why yeah, just why did he choose and like you can't see that like the only way that we could really truly see his patience and his long suffering and his graciousness is to have moments where he can be extremely patient (laughs) you know so it's like yeah for whatever reason this was the way that he got the most glory out of it and so we just have to trust that he he's doing it the way he wanted to (laughs) all right um let me pray for us again, and then we can go. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for our time together, Lord A. Uh, just once again, super thankful for these ladies and their um, just willingness to come and spend time with us uh, and just dig into the Word together. Lord, just be with us this week as we go. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.